Hey everyone, and welcome to the SaaS developer community where we learn from each other how to build software as a service. And with me today, I have an old colleague and really impressive expert in building really deep software infrastructure as a service, Ino Tereska. Um, and he pinged me, I think maybe two months back and said, yeah, I have some ideas to share about cell-based architecture. And I was like, oh, this is fantastic. Everyone keeps telling me that they want, they hear about it, but not enough people actually talk about it. So I'm super excited to have you here, I know. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gwen. A real pleasure. Yeah, and I think without further ado, I can just let you jump into explaining cell-based architecture for us all. Yeah, I will. Thank you. Um, you can see my slides, okay? Now we can. Good. Hey, super great uh, being here. I'll talk a little bit about a subject which I think is a little bit under-discussed uh, when we talk about building SaaS services and uh, control planes and all that. And that's the subject of cell-based architectures. A um, couple of words about uh, me, a couple of relevant bits to this talk. Um, I'm currently helping uh, Alteon uh, build their control plane. Alteon is a startup in the data protection and ransomware uh, detection and protection space. Um, I'm helping them build the control plane. So um, I'll talk a little bit uh, here about what we're doing there. Yeah. And uh, most recently, I was also a principal engineer in Amazon before Alteon. And I saw there a, a broad range of services across machine learning, streaming services, and, and storage, and uh, helped build a couple of uh, services all cellularized. So um, I want to share a couple of uh, the learnings that I saw there um, and have a discussion about this and, and see how this cellular service can actually help you build a, a robust SaaS service. Now, you know, we're all building on the shoulder of, of giants and there've been a whole bunch of talks, a whole bunch of really great talks as part of, of this series uh, that, that Gwen is running. And I wanna start where they have left off. Uh, we have talked about the importance. We're gonna take this for granted. We've talked about the importance of decoupling the control planes and data planes. We know that's important because we wanna isolate it from one another. Um, the data plane should continue to work even if there is something wrong with the control plane. That's great. We have talked about the use of uh, availability zones um, or, or zones in general. These are uh, data centers or a collection of data centers that are um, physically isolated from one another. So if something goes wrong, there is flooding in one of them. The other ones are still up and your tasks can still be available. Okay. Now, um, these are both of these are, are high availability building blocks. And this talk is gonna be uh, mostly about availability. There's gonna be a bit about security as well and isolation, but it's mostly about availability. So then the question is, are these two building blocks enough? And uh, it turns out um, they kind of aren't, especially if you wanna build a highly critical service. So let's look at a couple of real examples that um, I've seen and I'm sure you have seen as well in production when things go wrong. Um, the first one, here we are trying to do a deployment and something is misconfigured. We've done the deployment with the pipeline has gone to prod. 
and then the entire control plane is affected and the system is down. You can always roll back, okay, but now you, you have an availability issue because you have to take the time into account and, and you know, um, something went wrong that affected all your customers on the control plane. The second one is a little bit more mundane, but it's also, it, it happens all the time. Um, it's, you have reached some sort of quota. Uh, you, have, you have built your control plane. Um, you know, if this was 2018, you have probably built it with, with VMs um, and later on with containers and, and more recently perhaps with the, with the serverless components. But somehow you have reached some quota and you, you forgot about it. The quota is now reached. You can't onboard new customers. Again, um, an availability problem. You can't uh, accept new requests until you do something there, right? And the third one is um, a, a little bit similar to the first one, but this is more about buggy code. Uh, you've deployed a buggy feature. You'd love to test it with a few customers, uh, but you have kind of deployed it to the, your control plane and all the customers are affected. Now, um, for these particular problems, it doesn't matter if things were in different availability zones. Uh, it doesn't matter that you have decoupled the control from data plane, you still have to deal with them. And, and um, all of these are gonna lead into unavailability, which is not really great. So if we wanna build robust applications, um, a little bit more robust, now I'll talk a little bit later. Do you really need this? When do you need this? So this is not all the time, okay? But if we want to take things um, a little bit to the next level, um, we're going to talk in, today about cellularizing the control plane and, and cell-based architectures as a key to making the control plane uh, more robust. And now the overarching theme is going to be, um, you know, cells were typically used for critical services, but are now achievable for most services with a little bit of effort. So you too can also use them for your system. Super high level picture, okay? So what are these cells? How are things gonna look like? And, and here is the control plane and the data plane. I'll, I'll talk about some examples, right? The control plane could have your databases that, keeps, that keep the tenant information, metadata. The data plane could be something that moves the bytes around, right? But things are gonna look a little bit like this. So we have taken the control plane, the customer requests come there, right? And instead of just sending this request to one control plane, we're going to we're going to break up this control plane into a whole bunch of things called cells. And uh, we can also break up the data plane. That's, that's going to be uh, interesting, sometimes not necessary. I'll, I'll give some examples later. But for now, we focus on the control plane. And once we break it up, we're going to have, uh, you know, we're going to have a routing problem. How do we choose the right cell? Um, but all of a sudden, we also have something really great, which is if something goes wrong with one of the cells, the other ones can continue to work. And they're all completely isolated and independent from one another, which is, which is good. Um, so what do cells give us? So they give us better isolation. Um, one, across tenants, but two, also just prevent us from, you know, they kind of isolate our own buggy code, in a sense, from touching the entire control plane. Um, they give us an opportunity to do an even better deployment of software. We're going to see how we deploy from cell to cell and then roll back if something goes wrong. Uh, they also give us this extra benefit. We can rapidly scale the infrastructure. We can easily uh, you know, start a cell in any region in, of the world um, in, in just a couple of hours, maybe a day or two. Um, and that's a great way to scale our infrastructure and onboard new customers without worrying about quotas. Okay. So again, this theme... One of the main messages of this talk is 
These were used in the past for critical services. Uh, I'll talk a little bit. Uh, I have a pointer later on to the to the Fargate service, for example, in AWS or Lambda or DynamoDB. But today, anyone can really use cells with a little bit of effort, as we'll we'll show here. Okay, so hopefully that gives you an idea of the motivation. Again, we want to build robust services. So let's talk a little bit. Let's get a little bit into the details. So. And then we're going to come out of the details again and um, do a case study with Alcyon's control plane. Um, but let's get a little bit into the details. So what exactly is a cell? Um, so here's the theoretical part. And then I'll give a little bit of a sneak peek. So a, a cell is, however you can get into the completely self-contained and isolated parts of the control plane. Um, and it's something that's going to be sufficient. It's like, a, it, it provides like life support. For, for n percent of the customers, so maybe one percent of the customers, um, maybe you know, uh, if, if you want like an absolute number, maybe a hundred customers. Okay, not more than that though. There is like an upper limit. Yeah, and the cells do not communicate with each other. There is no event bus. There is there is not nothing of this form. Right, the cells just are able to completely um, service the customer requests and provide the what's needed. Now, I want to give a sneak peek so this doesn't get super theoretical. So for us in a cell is physically implemented simply through just another AWS account. So we run Alcyon on behalf of the customer. The customer doesn't need to run anything. But we have a lot of accounts in the backend. Um, there are other ways to do this, that you could have a cell through um, VPCs and things like that. But we do it through an AWS account, where one account is one cell. OK? Um, now, what do we have in the cell? Uh, viewers of, of, of this series know what goes on in the control plane and are not going to be surprised if we see that um, in this cell in the control plane, we have compute. Okay, this can be lambdas. This can be for whatever service provider. This can be VMs. Okay, uh, there's going to be monitoring there to see how and, and logs, right? There's going to be a database um, that keeps the metadata about uh, tenants and, and things like that. There's probably going to be an event bus and it's going to be storage as well. Now, we all know just because I've shown storage on the control plane doesn't mean that this is a data plane. This is still part of the control plane. Um, it's just the control plane needs to maintain a lot of state as well to kind of run to run the data plane, right? Sometimes the state can be, can be petabytes in, in size, and this is just metadata. So a cell is just going to contain uh, this, this ecosystem as well. It's going to contain a little bit of all of these things sufficient to run the workload that the customer demands, OK? Now, when, when do you start a new cell? Let's look at a couple of answers. So one answer is going to be here. And this is kind of like the, the, the obvious one, but also a very common one. Um, you start a new cell whenever you have reached some quota. And you cannot onboard new customers. So this has changed a little bit over the years. So I remember, like in the pre, my pre-serverless world, 2018, the things you would want to monitor here to see if you've reached a quota are things like how many VMs are you using? Are there any IP limits? Are there any like, uh, you know, like, actually, I've almost forgotten about all of those because I've moved to serverless now and I've forgotten about all of those limits. Yeah? <laughs> but I remember there were a whole bunch of them, right? Now, today, there are still limits in some of the services, no matter from what provider you use. Uh, so these hard limits have mostly gone. You can always ask for a quota increase, OK? But there are still some hidden limits, and you need to look at it carefully. So for example, how many concurrent lambdas can you start? It cannot be infinite. 
um, how many containers can you actually start per minute? You can have, you know, in many services, you can have an unbounded number of containers you start nowadays, but the number you can start per minute is actually still, there are still hard bounds there. Okay, I so- I think AWS also has a limit on the number of roles you can have, like in terms of like this- Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And we ran into, into it surprisingly early yes. in the life of a control plane. Uh, so, yeah. And it's always a moving target. Uh, there is always, um, there is always, you know, every year these limits kind of get pushed further. And you know, I look forward to a world with no limits, but they still exist there. So this might be a boring reason to start to sell, but it's a very valid one uh, where you just reach one of these. And uh, this actually quarters. talks to the way you are mapping sell to an account because when we talk to AWS and say, "Hey, we just ran out of." a number of roles we can have, they went to us and said, well, you should use it another account. Another account, so yeah. This is yeah. a really good mapping. Yes. Um, now, an another reason is you want to also have a, a very rapid unit of deployment. So Alcyon can deploy in a new region, which is part of a region build, um, really quickly. We have this goal to deploy within two days. And I think that's going to be decreased even further over time. And the deployment itself happens through you know, well-known um, tools like CDK or CloudFormation or Terraform. Um, but the fact that you have built your control plane in cells and you can just simply add cells and then the right thing happens really helps with this, the story of deploying quickly in a different region as well. And that's helped us deploy um, uh, in, uh, in Sydney, for example, quite quickly. Okay. Um, now, the other reasons um, are also there. So, um, you know, like a real limit, uh, a, a, a real reason here you want to have cells is to limit the blast radius, right? Uh, when I say real, I meant like a, maybe a little bit more exciting than just quotas, right? So um, you pick the number of customers to support per cell, for example, 100. And this is hard. This, this part is hard because it feels like, somehow it feels like you're limiting yourself. You're saying, oh, no, I'm going to only support 100 customers. That's a bad thing, right? Um, but it turns out that the cost of opening new cells is kind of is trending towards zero dollars. It's not exactly zero yet. I'll give some examples, but um, it's it's getting very cheap to open a new cell. So it's okay if you support only if, if you decide you're only going to support 100 customers per cell. If if you don't feel comfortable with having more or less customers per cell, it's okay to say 100 and then just start some new cells. The cost of doing so is, pre is pretty low. And again, like the reason here to, again, to, to start a new cell is to limit the blast rate. If something goes wrong, you only want 100 customers to be affected, not all of your other thousands of customers. Okay. Um, now, how are we going to open the cells? A little bit about that. So there are, there are many ways and hybrids of these ways, but like two kind of standard ones are, you open up a cell, you fill it up with customers, you kind of monitor some quota that you might be reaching, and then you say, oh, we're almost there, we're 80% there. You, you, and and you, you get ready, you open a new cell, and then you kind of seal the old cell. You say, oh, we're not gonna accept any more customers there, which again, sounds bad, but it's not really because it's kind of free to open up cells more or less, right? Um, and, and the other way is to do like a round robin. You, you say, I'm gonna have 10 cells, and then you round robin the customers across them. In practice, you'll need a hybrid of this because with the round robin one, 
well, you don't really know how many customers you're going to have. So uh, you can start with 10 cells, but then you might end up with 30 cells. So you'll need, and one of them might be really full. So you'll need like a hybrid of both of these two. Okay. Um, now, how do you do routing to the cells? Now, there are, so there are some kind of theoretically easy ways you do like, a, um, so, so, so the problem here now is like you have this 30 cells on the control plane, a new customer comes to on board, where do you send them? And in the future, when this customer comes back again, how do you route their request to the right cell? And there are kind of like the standard you do, you can do a, a, a mod on something like a, like a hash of the tenant ID, something like that. You can, you can make it load-based. If some of the cells are more loaded than the others, you can go to the other ones. You can have some deterministic or more complex uh, routing logic there. This turned out to be quite, it's not, um, I'll show Alcyon's uh, version. It's not always easy to implement this routing, especially because for us, like DNS-based routing doesn't work. Uh, we don't have like, um, we can't just go, a customer cannot just go to any cell. They have to like go to, once they go to one cell, they have to keep going there. And because we're uh, fully serverless, um, even our router is serverless, which is going to be interesting. So I'll, I'll show, I'll talk a little bit about that in a later slide. Just as a sneak peek though, that um, the routing is going to be a little bit of work. It's not going to, you might not find something off the shelf immediately there. And then how do you do the deployment, which is also going to be uh, important for, um, again, robust deployment of software. So in case something goes wrong, right? You have, you have uh, a way to pull back. Typically the deployment is done in this thing called waves, which is a set of cells. And uh, here I'm, I'm showing, I've labeled the cells in three waves. There's wave one, two, and three. And basically the idea is that you deploy on one of the sets, you monitor the metrics, you have some bake time in there, um, maybe even a couple of hours. Yeah. And the first thing you do if something goes wrong is you roll back. Um, never roll forward, always roll back. And, and if things go well, though, you just move to the new wave. Okay. You can also do it cell by cell. Now, if you have a lot of cells, that's going to mean there is this trade-off that your software is going to take a while to be deployed throughout the entire system. Uh, later on, I have a slide about this thing called the tiny cell, which can be really useful for, for testing software, like where you can just point just like 1% of your customers on a, or, or even one customer on a very small cell and kind of get there, get started from there. Okay. And across regions, um, you can choose to do the wave. Um, so whenever uh, we deploy, for example, we go, you know, US East and US West in parallel. You can also serialize it. Here, I don't have like a super strong opinion. I've seen teams do either of those. Um, again, uh, if you are in, in a lot of regions in the world, probably parallelizing it and going cell one on all of the regions makes more sense because yeah? you're going to deploy the software faster while still maintaining the level of robustness you desire. So main takeaway so far, um, and what are some of the things that you'll need to do if, if you're thinking of, about cells? Uh, the first one is monitor quotas. You are likely already doing this. I'm not telling you anything new. Uh, you're probably going to have to build the thin routing layer on top of your control plane. Um, and jumping straight to number five, probably you're going to have to avoid the need for global state. There's going to be a little bit of global state. We'll see that. But these two, number two and five, are a little bit more effort than the other ones, which you're probably already doing. Okay. 
Um, and then number three, you're going to deploy cell by cell or in waves, and then always roll back if something goes wrong. Uh, and, and of course, number four, just ensure the rollbacks work well. Again, you're likely already ensuring that it's part of your deployment uh, strategy. Um, we'll talk more about two and five uh, soon, but these are, these are the main takeaways so far. Let's look a little bit at Alcyon's control plane, a little bit of a, a plug about Alcyon, just so that you get a little bit of context. Um, we protect your data from ransomware and malware and, and outages, and we, we also uh, back it up and allow you to restore it. Um, the architecture itself, so that the rest of the discussion makes sense, the architecture is completely serverless. Um, just as a side note, I seem to have bypassed the the, the you know, I, I started with VMs and I'm going straight to serverless and I only had a little bit of Kubernetes in the middle. Um, so if you guys have questions about Kubernetes, I'm probably going to be weaker there, but we have jumped straight to the serverless um, and this has allowed us to deploy really quickly. Now we have a pragmatic mixture of um, event-driven, so uh, microservices, but also state machines um, parts in there. And, and these state machines are are really performing a lot of functions and either the entire thing completes or it doesn't, but they do it all in one go, yeah? So I think we're not, um, I, I think we have a little bit of everything in there. Uh, so it's, it's uh, I think it's pretty pragmatic. So uh, we have, yeah. surprised me here. You almost make it sound like event-driven and state machine-based architectures are opposites and you kind of uh, ended up being pragmatics and mixing them. But I always thought it's two patterns that actually go together extremely well. No, you're right. Know? You're right. Maybe I got too defensive there. I'm not sure why. Um, <laughs> I guess depending. I think I think this audience absolutely appreciates that that uh, it doesn't. They they are kind of like sides of the same coin. Uh, an event gets started, uh, gets intercepted. It might start the entire state machine, which itself will send events further downstream. You're absolutely right. I didn't have to make it sound like they are completely different things. They are side of the same, the same, the same coin, absolutely. Um, the data plane is open source um, and um, we engage with the community to develop uh, that. It's called Corso. And the data plane deals with a whole bunch of interesting things around uh, movement of data, just the actual flow of the bytes whenever you're doing a backup. Um, and it has a whole bunch of really neat things around, uh, you know, deduplication and, and encryption and, and verifying that the data is correctly moving and, and so on and so forth. But the control plane, um, the control plane manages those data flows on behalf of the customers. Okay, and, and it chooses when do you back up the data, um, how do you restore it, and it also detects it does some analysis on the data, it detects ransomware, and it flags it to the customer. So that's what the control plane does. Okay, so um, here is the, a picture of that. Um, and I have now labeled some of the, the, previously we had some boxes with things like compute, and, and here I'm making it a little bit more concrete. Uh, so here we see first the separation, the true separation of the control and data planes, where the control plane sends messages to the data plane, but only receives back metrics and logs. So in case the data plane is compromised, that doesn't touch the control plane. Um, what is in the control plane? Uh, we use Lambda uh, quite heavily and, and step functions, uh, DynamoDB. 
um, uh, we, uh, for storing the metadata. I'll talk a little bit about how much metadata is in the control plane. Um, and then on the on the data plane, we, we run Fargate, which is uh, AWS's container service. And there, as the final thing that runs there is, is Corso, which is the, the open source product that actually moves the bytes uh, from uh, from the source to us, uh, who, to, to, to Alcyon that performs the actual backup and the analysis of the data. OK. So um, what exactly then in this world is a cell again? So a cell is, is an AWS account. Um, the cost of opening this new cell tends to be zero, but it's not exactly zero yet, unfortunately. There are some services which are not, which are not fully, their cost doesn't go to zero when they're unused. I'm pointing fingers at the search service right now, but there are others as well. Uh, Aurora V2 is still not zero cost if you don't use it. I, I hope in the next couple of months or years, this service is also, their cost goes to zero if you don't use it, because if they do, then really, truly, the cost of opening a new cell is zero, okay? All right, right now, again, it's not zero because, for example, the, the search service has a baseline cost. I think it's something like $700, probably, um, even if you don't do anything at all, right? So this kind of answers this question, which is a little bit below, which is, why, why, you know, if the costs are low, why don't you just do one customer per cell? which I think is a valid question. Uh, but unfortunately, they're not quite zero. And even if there were zero, so we have, um, we support around three to 400 customers per cell. That number comes, um, if we want to get into the details, it comes from the um, rate of starting containers per minute. That's our, our main limiting factor. Um, even if the cost would be zero, probably one customer per cell might be a bit of an overkill because um, well, I don't know. Could it? Could it? Could it just work out? Um, we do have this notion of a of a tiny cell where we could really put one customer per cell, but with many customers, um, maybe I'm missing some sort of like a hidden cost. Maybe there is something I need to look into AWS's organizational uh, service. If there is like a per account, I mean, certainly it's a bit of a pain to like just open those accounts, but even that can be automated. So. I don't know. I'm discussing, I'm debating this with myself. I'm, I'm thinking you mentioned one other benefit of cells, which is around orchestrating upgrades. Yes. And you do want to orchestrate upgrades in groups. Yes. And I can imagine a world where you say upgrade a cell and then you have like a cell level automation that is well tested. And then the layer above that is not necessarily optimized to upgrade thousands of cells yeah, because it seems a bit hard to manage so you yeah it's always that layer of hierarchy seems useful for you're absolutely right there's always a little bit of that metadata overhead right if if you make the cells too small then all of a sudden you have a, a lot more of them and then something is going to cost you later on and you're absolutely right the the, the deployment is going to start being uh, an issue like all of a sudden your pipeline now is going to how are you going to even organize your pipeline, right? Uh, yeah. If you have like a thousand customers, and, you're and have even a thousand monitoring, stages. do you get if you if you aggregate monitors like metrics on a cell level, and then you have like a view of cells that you can drill down into, like bed cells versus getting all the metrics into one place, which is obviously humongous. No, that's good. You, you, you yeah. I needed this discussion because I've been thinking about this. How low can we go? <laughs> How many customers per cell? But that's right. 
the there is there is a cost. So it might be that the cost of opening a new cell is zero or close to zero in terms of just opening the account, but there is all this other cost of deploying and monitoring and you know thousands or you know tens of thousands of cells. So yeah, in practice, three to four hundred customers works well for us. Um, and this one question, customer per cell remains kind of like a theoretical data point. Um, and we also have this goal of bringing up a new cell in two days. Um, and uh, there is no reason why you can't bring it up even earlier. Sometimes, depending on the technology used for the actual deployment, cloud formation, Terraform, that might become like the bottleneck in the end, not so much like the creation of the cell. Uh, sometimes, um, when you know how many, when you know the quotas for a cell, kind of like a, a boring bottleneck might also be that you have to ask the cloud provider to give you that quota. So whenever we open the cells, I know we're adjusting some of the quotas because the defaults are not are not good enough. So just sending them, um, just asking for the quota upgrade could take could take a couple of hours, twenty four hours or more. What what are the quotas we monitor? Um, two of them, which are again not like the obvious ones, the the number of concurrent lambda executions, um, and the containers startups per minute. I think. Um, I think there's a hard limit of 500 containers starting up per minute. Yeah. Um, so that's yeah. exactly that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of like a, it's it's hidden in there, right? And it can hit you if, if you're not ready for it. Um, but yeah, um, yeah. I'm glad these are new things we monitor. In the past, it was things like Elastic IP addresses and and, and things like that. I'm I'm glad we don't monitor those anymore. But as you said, we might want to monitor other things as well, like uh, security policies. And look at all the things that without serverless you would have been monitoring, and yes. now you don't. You are yes. not monitoring CPU. You are oh, not no. monitoring the space you have left. Like there's just so much stuff you don't think about. Absolutely, disk size. I really never ever want to monitor this size again. <laughs> I know. Ever. Like it should just be there. Um, absolutely, really great point. Uh, now the routing. Um, for the routing, this is very specific to our service. Our service is such, and I perhaps should have mentioned that in, in the context, is that in our service, the customer tends to um, tends to onboard um, and tends to kind of start auto-protection. The customer might have uh, you know, hundreds or thousands of users. They all need to be backed up, and we need to detect ransomware and things like that. But the customer doesn't, you know, by default, doesn't, interact say like in a, in a real time doesn't need to interact get any bytes in real time because we take care of all of that okay so because the interactions with the customers uh, allow us in a sense a little bit more leeway we don't need to uh, you, you know it's not like the customer is getting these bytes as i said they are just sending us things like um hey protect this other user or, hey can i get a list of all the actions uh, all the backups you did uh, during the last couple of days um we have a little bit of leeway there. So our routing is based on a combination of API gateway and this cross-account lambdas. So um, a lambda actually does the routing. Um, we need to go to a particular cell. It goes to a lambda itself, which might be a bit weird, right? Because lambda is a compute unit. Um, but we found it easy to use it to kind of point it to any other cell that we have and, and, and kind of translate the, re the requests from when they come to the API gateway to uh, the cell account. Uh, as such. DNS-based solutions do not work in our case. Um, they can't 
quite express what we need in terms of routing logic. They might work in many other cases. Um, but yeah, that's our, that's our, we have well, a Lambda-based routing. And it could drill into how do you avoid, because if you have multi-region, you probably want clients to talk to a nearby cell and yeah. that's where DNS usually shows up as a good you, idea. You, yeah, you're right. You're right. So this, this kind of, um, this doesn't talk about that layer. This talks about once, um, because in a region, even within a region, we can have tens of cells. Mm. So this is more about the, that final bit. Like you are in a region, you have arrived there, you get a request from customer. How do you know now in which cell is the customer located in? Yeah. And that part is, is based for Lambda. DNS, based, you're absolutely right. They work well for the, um, the regional routing part. Um, right. Now, there is a little bit of like magic here, in, or, or rather lack of magic, because I said like one of the goals, whenever you're building the cell-based architectures is you need to avoid having global state, but you can't quite avoid having all global state. Uh, so we have to kind of be a little bit pragmatic here and we do have some global state, okay? So, but we have very little of it. We have a little bit of tenant per tenant information in a, in a, in a database, a DynamoDB database, which is, it's a global one, so it's replicated around the world, okay? And this DynamoDB database is also stress tested for recovery. We have, you know, backed it up. We, we do uh, game days where we uh, test its recoverability under failure. And more importantly, there's very little bit of state in the O of kilobytes of data. Whereas the cell itself has potentially could have petabytes of data in the, in the DynamoDB that deals with the with, with like like the the, the non-tenant management part, all the other metadata, all the other things that we keep for tenant, like when was the last backup done? What kind of uh, activity did we see there? Was there ransomware and things like that? Okay, so this is kind of like the pragmatic uh, split here. The the global state is not cellularized. It, there is really, if you can think of it as just like one cell, but that cell is, I shouldn't say cell because it's not really a cell, but that state is heavily replicated and heavily backed up as well. And we do disaster recovery exercises on, on those kilobytes of data. Okay. Um, so this is where, this is where uh, you, know, you do need a little bit of, of, of state, but most of the other one, the, the petabytes should really reside inside the cell. Okay. Now, this is, this is something interesting because sometimes I fall about this myself. So what about data plane cells? Uh, in our world, the data plane, as I said, it's Fargate itself. So here we need to be really careful. Um, and I have some anti-patterns uh, in the last section, which is like not to reinvent the wheel and take cells too far. Uh, sometimes I, I need to remind myself of this as well. So the container service Fargate itself is already cellularized. It's control plane. And I have a link to that. There is a really nice uh, uh, video that describes that. Its control plane is already cellularized by AWS. So we get this for free. So um, we should kind of resist the temptation to, or, or S3 for that matter. We should kind of be mindful there that um, in, our, in our case, we didn't need to do anything about the data plane. It was, we got the, the cellularization for free. Okay. Um, so, so only do the cellularization when it makes sense when it's the services that you're kind of putting together that manage some state 
And things like Lambda or, or Fargate or S3 or DynamoDB, they or, or from other cloud vendors, I'm sure they're already cellularized. I mean, double check, but you probably don't need to re-cellularize them. Yeah? Um, Can I ask ways, a Fargate yes. question? I don't know if it's exactly your area of expertise, but one thing I was on the fence on is, is Fargate a good place for mission-critical work? And it sounds like you think, yes, it is, but were there any catches, gotcha, um, around using Fargate for something that is supposed to be performant, highly available, all those things? It really depends on the workload. Um, uh, for us, it works well, but again, the kind of workload we have is also, um, let, let me just give some examples. Sometimes, um, you know, we, we do backups or we analyze the data that we have already backed up, we analyze it for ransomware. Um, if Fargate is, if one of those tasks is ever down, uh, like in one of the AZs, we simply restart it, it goes to another AZ, and um, our data plane, the, the course of it implements something, I'm getting into the details, but I think that's important, implements something called uh, incremental backups. So you can always start off from where it left. Um, so for us, Fargate is not doing, is not say sending streaming data or data that we need to look at like all the time, is doing this, this task that we ourselves kind of checkpoint. And therefore uh, we work around any kind of limitations of Fargate by just um, whenever we restart tasks. Um, they just start off from where they left. Now, I'm just saying that our um, particular workload is more tolerant of Fargate's peculiarities. Having said that, I don't think I've seen like any major, I haven't seen any, any more downtime from Fargate than I'm seeing from other services. I mean, we have already been through uh, two or three uh, Lambda kind of downtimes. We have been through one or two Fargate downtimes uh, and the control plane and data plane are resistant to that. The data I have right now doesn't show like any greater downtime for Fargate. But again, I don't want to take this too far, but if I were to implement, I don't know, you know, like Kafka or other services like that, that really are streaming data with Fargate, I'll probably think twice in those cases, right? Because um, maybe there where you really need like the low latency and you really need it to be, uh, you, you're, you're looking at all the bytes, maybe that's not good enough. But no, you know, this is just like a discussion, no big data to like prove or disprove yeah. that. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So what are some of the takeaways so far? Again, monitor quotas, build a thin routing layer. This will be a bit of work and avoid the need for global state. And maybe three, the cost of opening the new cell is tending to zero. There are services that unfortunately do not dial up and down um, as the usage goes up and down. I think they all promise that, but some of them are not there yet, okay? So a couple of practical tips to end with. Um, the first one, tiny cells. Um, this is, this is kind of useful for, uh, for like extreme isolation. You know, sometimes you might have a customer that needs to reside in a particular zone, maybe a government customer or, or you know, some, some, some customer that really, really, really must not reside with anybody else on that, on that uh, account, yeah? So sure enough, you can open a cell, you can put the customer there. Um, that's great, 
right? Uh, the other reason you might need tiny cells um, is for testing. Uh, you can start with a, with a very tiny cell and direct um, the first, direct a new piece of software, deploy it to this tiny cell first, and route only three customers to this tiny cell. And, and that's great. Now, we, you, you got to be careful there, right? Maybe one of these customers is actually you. You're kind of like dog fooding your own food. Uh, maybe because these three customers hopefully are not going to suffer a lot from like mistakes you make in your code. But but the point the point here is that this helps with A/B testing, and uh, if you do this carefully, it can really increase the the overall reliability of the service. Um, question I always get is cell migration because it's kind of exciting. Um, I'm always asked, it's great, uh, everything is great, cells are great, uh, but if they get full. Um, can we start to migrate the workload? You know, I talked about when you seal the cell, when it's full of customers, and shall we migrate it? Shall we migrate that workload to another cell? And cell migration is hard. Um, it's really hard. Um, it's a, there's, there's no magic there. There's, there's going to be a lot of state. I tend to think of uh, this is probably like a year three, year four project in the startup. Um, and yeah, it's hard. Um, it's doable. Uh, probably you'll have to do it like in, in the end. Uh, there's nothing that stops you. You can make use of uh, services like S3 or DynamoDB or any other storage service. Um, you, you have talked in the past about decoupling compute from storage, so you can make use of um, storage service to help you there. But I probably wouldn't start with cell migration. I'd probably make use of the fact that you can start a new cell quickly, seal the old one, and even if customers from the old one leave, I think that's okay for a while. Yeah. So if you want to move fast there, you don't you don't need to implement migration. Right and away. the really key for that is to keep the cost of a cell to near zero because if cells are expensive and it's very much yeah. architecture dependent, then you are trying to maximize the value of a cell. You'll probably not seal it early enough. Yes. <laughs> You're yes. not going to leave a lot of space for people in the cell to grow, which is super exactly. important. Exactly. So this, this helps one another. But yeah, year three, year four, if you're done early with everything else in your year one and year two, then go for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and then again, like, it's worth reflecting after all of this, you know, do I really need cells for my service, right? And the way I argue about this is that I would design from cells for cells from day one because I think the cost is low. I don't think we talked here about anything extraordinary you need to do. And most likely, even for, for the state, most likely you're keeping the tenant state separate anyway. Right? Um, and then I would kind of take the pragmatic view where you design for it, you monitor the quotas, you monitor the customer load. And, you know, the startup starts adding some customers, right? And add the second cell whenever it's needed. Now, meanwhile, um, test, test that before you add the cell, obviously. Right, but then don't edit if it's not needed. Right, so if you're, um, you know, if 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 scale the effort as 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 the number of customers uh, enters the system, but but design for sales from the beginning. That's the case I'd like to make here. Um, and finally, uh, an anti-pattern: don't cellularize what's already cellularized. I allude, alluded to this. Um, here is an example where there is some service where you're trying too hard to cellularize. You have potentially created, say, multiple Fargate clusters, and um, which which is okay. But then, 
I don't know what you've done. You, you, you think you might have cellularized it, you're calling like different endpoints, but, and then you have some complex routing, which is possibly a lot of fun, but probably unnecessary. And then you're calling, you're calling Fargate in different ways, but Fargate or S3s or Lambda's control plane is already cellularized. So no matter which way you call it, it's gonna to go to a cell. And if the cell is down, another cell is gonna take over on a retry. So um, don't cellularize things that are already cellularized. In summary, um, hopefully I convinced you that um, cells are needed to build even more of our services that we've had before with the decoupling of the control plane and data plane and the availability zones. Those are great building blocks. We just added the third one to our, our shelf. Uh, we talked a little bit about um, what the cells are, routing, how you need to monitor them. We had a little bit of a glimpse into some of these you know, details. What, what does it really mean uh, using Alcyon's control plane? And some practical tips. Hopefully I've shown you that you know, cells in the past typically used for critical services. Today, hopefully everybody can use them with a little bit of effort. Where you wanna go from here? I've put some examples here. Um, AWS Fargate under the hood, great talk. Um, a lot of detail about how it's controlled and it's built. Other case studies, uh, DoorDash has a, has, a, has a video on the journey to the cell-based microservices architecture and uh, Slack has a blog post about how they move to a cellular architecture. That's it. Thank you. Thank you, Ino. Uh, while we're on this slide, I just want to do a small plug because my former team at Confluent recently delivered a paper in VLDB, uh, and it's around their core engine, which is kind of the, the way they resort Kafka. And they, it's one of those papers when they try to talk about 5,000 different things and only spend a few paragraphs on each. But one of the themes there is the, their move to cell-based architectures Perfect. as well. So Perfect. it's definitely something that is kind Let's of trending. Absolutely. absolutely. Did, I heard, I have not read the paper, I heard they won a best paper award of sorts. Yeah, yeah. They're yes. absolute rock stars. It's that's, very bittersweet awesome. to see your former team be being such. That's awesome. Such that's a awesome. Big I should have added here. Please edit as a as a link as well. Um, that paper is on my to do list for reading it. I saw that they won the award, and I had no doubt that they would. There will be a link in the show notes as usual. <laughs> um. So you know, I don't know if you want to leave the slides on for this part or not. Let's try without, and I'll bring the slides in. Good. Uh, needed. Um, so one of the things you said is that hey, you can do it. On, you can do cells on day zero, which I I love. And you're right. Cell is basically what you would otherwise write, yep. and just deployed in a certain way. The part that actually looked hard. You also mentioned that you need a bit of a global state, and you mentioned how much you tested uh, the global state to make because yeah. it now becomes the critical pass. This is, seems like possibly a heavy lift for early stage company. It might be, and I'll add a little bit some stuff I didn't mention there. Um, there, there is a little bit of, of global state. But if you want to go into the details even more, there is a little bit of code as well that's being deployed in this routing lambdas. And that's a deployment as well, which is, um, you know, which, which you need to, what is that expression? Like if you keep 
all the eggs in one basket, you better really watch that basket, right? <laughs> yes. um, so for us, the global state was not a heavy lift because naturally we wanted to keep some state for the tenants, right? Where we are doing data backup and they have strict requirements on where the data must be stored. Yeah. So we really already needed like a very simple mapping between, hey, there's the tenant, this is where the data needs to be, right? Once we had that mapping, we also realized that um, we were extra paranoid with it. We really want to like uh, replicate this. And naturally we started using like global tables, right? And then because we're extra paranoid because we're a data protection company, we also want to do some, some disaster recovery. So we also tested that part really well. Now, in the end, it's just a DynamoDB table, which is global, that's backed up and we've tested DR. Is that a heavy lift? I mean, I'm thinking about it. Um, we certainly have to be mindful of it, but we had to probably do it either way. Whether we had cells or not, we needed this state. Now we could have put it in all like, you know, in, in one big control plane, but it doesn't feel like a huge lift. I think maybe, maybe the routing Lambda is a little bit more of a, yeah. when I look at, at our own efforts, it's a little bit more of a lift, to be honest. Yeah, I was wondering um, a bit how much of the routing logic is something that actually API Gateway actually does. Like you can tell it, look in that table in DynamoDB yeah. and give me my routing, or if it's something you need to implement a lot of. There routing. are many ways of doing this. Is the this is the other thing. Depending on your service, there are many ways of doing this routing as well. And the routing itself is not complicated. It's very very few lines of code, um, but the deployment there needs to be with no downtime. So if you're changing. Um, if changing a little bit of code there, then the question is how exactly do you test it? So that one was a little bit of heavy lifting. Yeah, I'm trying to think if I have any more questions. And you mentioned so, something that was really interesting for me. You mentioned basically wanting to have zero cost for the yeah. new control plane cells, which meant that you went with a lot of lambdas and serverless things. One thing that I heard from a lot of companies who did a lot of work in Lambda was that it gets messy. And yep. I was wondering if you had the same experience that your sales logic got a bit messy or if you had any techniques that you can share about how not to get into a mess. Yeah, um, Lambdas can, you know, it takes, um, it takes a while to get used to them. I mean, certainly in terms of, just developer productivity, not many developers are used to programming with lambdas. It's just a very different way of doing things. Um, I think, and, and you'll be pleased to hear this, I think one of the ways we're kind of keeping the architecture simple is through the use of an event bus. So, um, you know, there is gonna be multiple times the case where you insert some state in your database, and then you wanna fire off a whole bunch of lambdas depending on what the state was. And, um, you know, we don't want it to be the case that you have like lambdas all over the place, all trying to listen to this database and it just becomes, you know, this, it just becomes like a nightmare. So the use of the event bus where you just put the events there from DynamoDB first and then you fire off the lambdas certainly has simplified things. That's number one. Number two, um, we've been really careful and, and I think this is important, something I didn't talk about. We've been really careful that all the work that our lambdas do is idempotent. And that has been our main... Now, that's not easy. That definitely requires some thought. Um, 
But the net effect is that all our lambdas are idempotent. So the moment, if they do fail, you can redrive them. And you are um, you can redrive them without worrying that, hey, something will go wrong with the redrive. We're going to get the data twice or three times. You redrive them, they're idempotent. You can rest assured that um, like a simple retry is going to solve your problem. right? So the use of the event bus or event buses and idempotence makes the situation slightly easier. Um, now, you know, I've read friends who have looked into like deeper aspects of software engineering, and I'm sure there's a paper out there that says like, you know, do you do it with the Lambda or do you do it like with, with like, you know, like something else. And I'm not entirely sure like where, where the cutting edge is certainly like in academia for, for this kind of work. I, but yeah, I think event buses and Ardem photons got us, have, have gotten us quite far and have gotten us really up to speed with like uh, the speed of development and the speed of deployment is, is unbelievable. Amazing. Yeah. That's all a startup really needs, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly at the beginning. Yeah. Is there anything I should be asking and I'm forgetting? I'm now looking. There... One last thing about the costs, since you mentioned yeah. the costs um, and the routing. Um, our routing might be a little bit more complicated, but I also want to, I don't want to leave uh, the audience with the impression that all routing is complicated. There will be cases where doing like a simple, as you said, like with API Gateway, doing a simple hash of the tenant ID and you can find the cell and there is like no concern with routing. Okay, it's just we cannot do it like that because of our particular uh, peculiarities, but that's completely possible. Okay, mm -hmm. you can you can consistently get into the cell that you want with a very simple calculation. I do want to warn listeners. Yes. <laughs> I, I've had to do the whole tenant routing thing. I think the well. first time since year two was in year two thousand. So every once in a while, I do it every uh, for the last uh, twenty something years. The I will do some hash hash function. It doesn't work after after one. Literally, the, literally after the first time you deploy, if your launch is at all successful, you will need to yeah, add an extra cell. Yeah. Do you actually yeah. want to move everyone around? No, you don't. You really don't. Because as you said, migrating tenants between cells is the hardest thing in the world. That's so fair. whatever you do, do not do the hash function. No, that, <laughs> that's fair. I just say. didn't want to scare the audience. Like they don't always have to do like a complex like routing either. I, I agree. Hopefully for their cases, sometimes the routing can be simpler. Maybe it's not as simple as the hash, but hopefully it doesn't have to be super complicated. Yeah, I wouldn't like either is like the consistent hashing that Cassandra talked about. Again, it it works in some cases. And exactly the cases where moving a tenant from cell to cell is no big deal. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Cool. Cool. So, yeah. Well, hey, thank you. Thank yeah. you for having me here. This, this has been really great. Thank you so much. I learned so much, and it was just probably the clearest explanation of cells, especially for early stage companies that I've ever heard. So, thank you so much for it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>